to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. My guest today is a professor of history at the University of California, Irvine. He's the author of several books and most recently is the co-editor of One Land, Two States, Israel and Palestine as Parallel States. Mark Levine, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Mark, thank you for coming on the show today. And you know, I always like to get a little bit of background on my guests before I really get into the meat of things. So if you could just give us a brief summary of your background. How did you come to be involved in this project concerning the concept of parallel states as it relates to the Israel and Palestine conflict? Wow. Well, I've been involved in studying Israel-Palestine for 30 years since I was a teenager and certainly in college when I went to college. You know, I focused on comparative religion and Old Testament studies and biblical studies and then moved on to studying Arabic and just continued from there. And then in graduate school, spent a lot of time in the country working on my research for my dissertation, which looked at the history of the city of Tel Aviv as well as the uh, town of Jaffa, which was the capital of Arab Palestine until 1948. So they had a very interesting relationship since Tel Aviv was founded by Jews from neighboring Jaffa. And um, to me, their relationship kind of was a metaphor for the way the conflict unfolded over time. Since then, you know, I've written four or five books dealing with the two, the two peoples and the history of the country. And even though I've moved on to many other countries in the region, I still think really there's no better way to explore the history of the Middle East, North Africa, Arab Muslim world, then looking at the history and present day realities in Israel-Palestine as a key to understanding so many of the other conflicts. As someone who studied this kind of crisis extensively, what do you see as the, the real root of the problem with Israel and the Palestinians? I mean, we always hear this, this kind of idea that this conflict has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, but really this, this modern conflict does have, I think, very real things we can point at in the last hundred years or so that, that really are the root of the problem. So what do you see as the roots, the real root of the current crisis? First of all, that's the single most important thing anyone can say is what you just said, which is the reality that this is not about some ancient hatreds or people who have been fighting for thousands of years. That's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, Jews and Palestinian Arabs or other in- indigenous inhabitants of the territory that today is called either or, or both Israel and Palestine, you know, have both have very long-term presences there. They lived there for centuries together under uh, Ottoman rule. It was certainly not a paradise. There, but it certainly was a situation in which a small Jewish community was very well rooted, became increasingly prosperous as the 19th century went on and more and more people came, especially more and more Jews started visiting the country. Uh, the beginnings of a Palestinian national consciousness also emerged in the late 19th century, literally at the same moment that Zionism really arrived on the ground in Palestine. So these two movements really emerged not just in opposition to each other, but through each other. And uh, the Israeli geographer Yuval Portugali, uh, I think, described it best as an implicate relationship, that it's just impossible to imagine the history of one without the history of the other, and therefore the identity of one without the identity 
of the other. And that sort of is the premise behind our idea of parallel states or parallel shared overlapping sovereignties is recognizing the fact that however conflictual, violent, uh, and, and problematic their relationship has been, you also can't conceive of Zionism or of Palestinian nationalism without the other being completely enfolded in it. And, and of course, most Palestinians and Israelis don't want to admit that. Uh, because you usually don't want to admit the person you've been fighting for so long is actually almost a part of you, but that is, in fact, from a scholarly perspective, an absolutely valid uh, empirical comment to make. So in, in that sense, I think, you know, the route goes back to a large number of Jews beginning to emigrate to Palestine in the late Ottoman era. You know, up until the First World War, there was really not much hope that they could ever constitute a majority or or obtained some kind of sovereignty there, but once the British conquered the territory, they were encouraged by the British to build this national home, which the British agreed with the Balfour Declaration to help support. The problem really occurred with the very terms of the Balfour Declaration, which said that the British would help build a Jewish national home while protecting the civil and religious rights of the local inhabitants. And right there you see the dichotomy. You see that the British committing themselves to build a national home for a people that whatever its historical roots there, we can argue that till, you know, till the end of time and no one can prove either way. Right. But whatever its past history, the reality is, is that at that moment, they were a small minority. And the large indigenous majority, which was already engaged in its own process of modernization and formation of a, of a modern community, was suddenly left completely out of the framework of developing the country. And while the British encouraged Jewish development, encouraged Jewish immigration much of the time, encouraged the development of a modern democratic Jewish polity or community in Palestine, they did everything possible to frustrate the emergence of a Palestinian polity that in any way would be similar. So they did not allow democratic Palestinian institutions. They did not allow any real Palestinian development. They, you know, in so many ways, the Palestinians had the deck stacked against them. And this, of course, allowed Jews and, and specifically Zionism to become the most powerful force in the country. And that, of course, made it possible in the wake of the Holocaust and the end of the mandate for the State of Israel to be created and succeed in, in establishing itself in a hostile environment. So the roots really go to the very terms of the relationship as set up by the British, without which, of course, there would have never been a State of Israel, because unless the Jews were given a disproportionate amount of power, they as a small minority could never have succeeded in creating the State. So that's the problem. You know, the State of Israel could only have been born by basically, you know, arrogating itself far more rights, territory, land, power, than by any numerical or demographic measure they should or would have been able to have. And, and that, of course, when you align that with Zionism as a movement, which is inherently a colonial, a settler colonial movement, like American nationalism, Australian nationalism, South African nationalism, like so many other projects of, over, of settlement by Europeans, white Europeans, had a very negative view of the local population and also of so-called Oriental Jews. So it wasn't just Arabs who Zionism, you know, had a very low opinion of. And that attitude continued through Israeli rule in the first 20 years of the state's existence over the, the Palestinian citizens and then was in spades once it conquered the biblical heartland 
of Israel, which is today still the crux of the problem, the West Bank. So really it's a problem of nationalism, and it's a problem of history, and it's a problem of an imbalance in power that was artificially put in place by a third party, the British, and then supported that imbalance over the decades by a succession of other groups, the French and then the Americans especially. And as long as that imbalance stays the way it is, it's impossible for there ever to be any kind of peace that the weaker side could ever live with, because quite simply the stronger side has no incentive to actually make any sacrifices or make any compromises that would enable a viable, territorially and economically viable state on the other side to come into being. So this was essentially a very unjust structure you know, in the first place, which of course is going to lead to conflicts, especially over the years. And, and do you think that the current two-state proposals that we've seen that have completely failed? Do you think that there is just no way the, the current solutions being put forward can possibly work? There was no way they were ever going to work. As Meron Benvenisti, the most important geographer of Jerusalem, put it in 1987 already with the West Bank Database Project, he stated, which is perhaps the most important uh, academic document ever done on the West Bank, in 1987, before the Intifada erupted, when there were only, I don't know, 70,000 Jewish settlers and a few dozen settlements, as opposed to over half a million and hundreds of settlements and outposts today, he said that the territories are already so integrated into Israel that it is impossible to imagine separating them. So already six years before the peace process started, scholars who knew what the ground was like knew that this would be impossible. And of course, Israel's leaders understood this full well. Meron Benvenisti was a deputy mayor of Jerusalem. If he knew this, you can bet the entire Israeli political establishment knew this. So the reality is Oslo was a lie. It was a gigantic lie from the start. It was never going to produce a viable Palestinian state because simply the conditions had already made it impossible before it even started. So what was Oslo about? Oslo was about entrenching the Israeli Jewish presence in the West Bank. Pure and simple. That was the beginning, the middle, and the end of Oslo. The goal was to have a process that would allow the settlement process to continue, have a peace process that would enable the settlement process to continue until it was politically impossible to even imagine dividing the land. And then once that moment happens, then figure out what to do next. And this is a tactic that was publicly described by Begin, publicly described by Yitzhak Shamir, publicly described by Netanyahu's chief foreign policy advisors, always stall stall with conditions on the ground, stall with, use the peace process to stall until facts on the ground render it impossible. And if you can just do this over and over again until the game is over, then you've won. And that's clearly what they've done. The surprising thing is that, you know, Palestinians who are part of the process can't admit that because literally then they become jobless and lose whatever power they have. The U.S. can't admit that because then it's been a broker to a process that was a lie. The Europeans don't want to admit that because they're very happy to just pay out a little bit of money here and there to keep everything quiet when they have so many other problems. So, you know, and, and most Israeli Jews don't want to admit it because it's not actually very difficult to maintain the occupation. Never mind what it's costing Israel ethically or morally or spiritually. It costs about the price of a cup of coffee for the average Israeli to maintain the occupation. So no one other than Palestinians on the ground has an incentive to change this, and they don't have the power to do so. And no matter what they do, they're screwed. So, you know, that's really the reason why we're in the present situation. 
And this brings us to the, the proposed solution that you're a part of, that many others have become a part of, and that is the parallel state structure. So we'll get into some of the specifics of that and you know some of the criticisms that I've, I've seen around about the parallel states concept. But first, can you just give a brief overview of the basic structure of a parallel states agreement and just how do you see you know something like that coming about? Well, basically, let me just say how this happened. Sure. You know, uh, Ambassador Matthias Molsberg, who's a Swedish ambassador, who was one of the people involved at the heart of the peace process, since it was the Stockholm back channel. Most people don't realize this, but Oslo started in Stockholm. And then the Social Democrats, right at it started, lost power in an election to the conservatives who wanted nothing to do with this. So they called their friends, who were also Social Democrats in the foreign ministry in Norway, said, can you take this over? We think it can do something. So Mosberg was there from the beginning and had very senior posts within the negotiating team of the EU to the Oslo peace process. So he's seen it since the beginning, right? And he was an ambassador, in fact, uh, to Arab countries even before the peace process. So he's been around this process since the start. He obviously had an incredible uh, Rolodex of leading Israeli and Palestinian thinkers and policymakers who he felt wanted to think outside the box and if they were given the chance could maybe come up with something new. My uh, university in Sweden, Lund University Center for Middle Eastern Studies, had uh, the vision to say this could be a very interesting idea and this is something we should help sponsor. So together they set up this project for a parallel state research based on Mosberg's long experience there and his experience in other conflict zones when he was working for the Swedish government and the UN, where he came to realize that there must be a way out of these territorial imbroglios. Why does it have to be a zero-sum game? Why does sovereignty always have to be exclusive when, in fact, in so many places, there are many different levels of sovereignty? In the U.S., we have different levels of sovereignty. We have states, and we have federal sovereignty, and obviously we're still debating in many ways who has jurisdiction, which is the most important sovereignty. So this, to have different levels and types of sovereignty overlapping is in no way as novel as it might seem, right? And it happens in many other places around the world, and especially in Scandinavia, where Scandinavian countries have had different kinds of overlapping sovereignties in, in border regions for, for at least a century. So this is not an entirely new idea. And when he started talking with his Israeli and Palestinian colleagues, he put together a team, which I joined soon thereafter, whose goal was to take this idea that he called a parallel sovereignty idea or parallel states and figure out if we could separate the aspect of territoriality from the notion of sovereignty and create a shared notion of sovereignty or overlapping so that Jews and Palestinians could live anywhere in the territory of Israel-Palestine and still be citizens of their state. And, you know, he realized, and we realized pretty quickly, that this basically was the only two-state solution left. And yeah, that, that's one thing I really like about this idea, this concept of parallel states, that it really focuses on the concept of the individual, the individual choosing essentially their own political fate. And, you know, one concept that is described in the book is this concept of divisible sovereignty. So can you get into that a little bit more and just describe exactly how that would work and what that really is? Sure. Well, you know, the, the existing notions of sovereignty most often in the world today are as sort of a descendant of a Westphalian notion of sovereignty centered on the nation-state. And the nation-state as an institution is one that is grounded in the idea of certain states that represent some kind of unitary 
community called the nation. This state has a certain territory and certain borders that are recognized by other states, and within that those territories, that state has complete sovereignty and cannot be interfered with. That's essentially the organization, organizing principle of the modern world. Now, the problem is, is that in so many post-colonial states, especially, and it's important to talk about post-colonial states, because what colonialism did was apply a Westphalian framework to territories that never should have been part of the same state. You know, so, you know, the British, when they put together Nigeria or they put together Iraq or the French put together Syria or any of these countries that were created through British and French, especially colonialism, they took peoples who certainly had, you know, thousands of years of relations with each other, but not in the sense of a modern political nation state territorially grounded community and created these communities to serve their interests, not at all in line with the natural ethnic, religious, sectarian divisions among the peoples living in the larger territory. So they created states that did not correspond to nations and which did not have the centuries of time it took. If you think about where the nation state began in Europe, the nation state emerged after centuries of war, after centuries of fighting, after centuries of, of start and stop movement in the sense of building identities. And this natural process was never allowed to play out. And certainly Palestine-Israel is a perfect example of that. So you have these two groups that are competing in a zero-sum game over this territory, but our question is why? Because however brutal the occupation is, if you actually look at the settlements in the West Bank, the built-up area of the settlements take up only 6 to 10% of the territory at most. And in fact, the large share of settlements are built on higher ground where Palestinians don't typically build. While a lot of Palestinian land has been taken, a lot of it has been used for security purposes, not for built-up area of settlements. And if you remove that and you just thought of the settlements as other communities and you looked at the map or from space, you could see that, in fact, there is enough room for Jews and Palestinians to live in a normal geography, not an occupation geography. So in our proposal, the settlements could stay because they would not include all the gigantic security apparatus that surrounds them, which, dis, you know, which removes so many Palestinians from their land. In the same way, Palestinians could return to what today is considered Israel. And this is absolutely crucial because the thing that Israeli Jews in general are most scared of is the right of return. Because if Palestinians return to a Jewish, a geographically, territorially Jewish state, then that Jewish state no longer exists, right? Because now, instead of having more Jews than Palestinians, you have the same number or even less Jews than Palestinians in the near future. So certainly no Israeli Jew, or at least most, is not going to accept the return of many Palestinians to their state if in so doing it would mean the end of their state. But if you remove territory from the equation and Jews and Palestinians can live anywhere in this territory and still retain the majority and the power within their state, then suddenly territory ceases to be the defining issue, and it allows for two things. It allows for Jews to remain in the West Bank, which is, after all, the biblical heartland of Israel, right, and therefore has you know, absolutely special importance. It allows Palestinians to return, which is something Oslo always imagined could just be deferred until the end and then forgotten about, which was another lie. 
It was never going to work out that way. And without disturbing the demographic balance of a Jewish state, it allows Jerusalem to be what it always should have been, which is shared and not divided and not conquered. Right? And it also allows for a true free market integration of the Israelis and Palestinian economies without one side having absolute and unequal control over the other, which is the other thing that Oslo ensured would happen with giving Israel so much power over the Palestinian economy. It creates a truly open economy that would allow market forces to help shape you know, use the comparative advantage of both to help shape the broader Israeli-Palestinian economic system for the best benefit of both. So, in our view, a parallel state structure allows things to happen which Oslo, because it was territorially grounded, absolutely could not. Uh, obviously, a sort of radical idea like this, and I don't necessarily think it's radical, but it's radical when, you know, compared to the current solutions that have been offered in the past 20, 30 years to the situation. So what are the, the most common criticisms, first of all, that you have seen from other people or even maybe, I don't know if you have colleagues that have criticized this work or what have you seen out there? Let me state that this was imagined as a provocation, an intellectual provocation. We have been doing this collectively. If you look at the collective people, I don't know, 15 people have been on this project. We probably have a combined, you know, thousand years, not kidding either, 800, 900 years of experience in this, in this conflict. So I think there's enough wisdom in the project to know that any idea that is so-called out of the box is going to be difficult to, to get through. But let me just point out two things. First of all, when the practical is shown to be impossible, the utopian suddenly doesn't seem so impossible, you know? I mean, these other solutions seemed practical. They seemed eminently reasonable, but in fact, they were illusions. So they never were going to work. Therefore, to consider those not, I mean, in a sense, those were the radical ones because they actually had no chance of working, so they were a waste of time. But beyond that, the, the single biggest comment is, yeah, that's nice, but why would Israelis agree to this? Why should they? They have all the power. They maintain the occupation without too much cost, more or less, financially. They still have friends in high places, even if Obama thinks, you know, Netanyahu is chicken shit or whatever he said. You know, the relationship has too much money and too much strategic value in it, so it's not going anywhere. So why should Israelis agree to this? And, you know, that's a difficult question to answer, because in reality, Israelis are in a position to do nothing. They can just keep riding this for as long as the gravy train goes on with the U.S., and they're not forced to. But what we think is there is really serious cost to this occupation to Israel. It may be able to continue, but anyone, even someone who's an ardent Zionist, who reads the Hebrew media on a regular basis, certainly the independent Hebrew media, Haaretz, and, and any Israeli who has ever, and I've been with a lot of them, gone to the territories and actually lived, seen life through the eyes of a Palestinian, how brutal and bad this occupation is, understands that this is destroying the soul of Israel, and I would say, moreover, doing irreparable harm to Judaism as a religion and as a culture. It's turning it into what Michael Lerner, the, Rabbi Michael Lerner, the editor of Tikkun, is called the settler religion that is, has lost so much touch with the core progressive values of Judaism that's defined it for, well, 3,000, 4,000 years, the emancipatory vision. And the cost of this ultimately is creating a country that looks very different from what the Zionist dream imagined it would. 
a liberal progressive beacon unto the world, which is clearly how Herzl, you know, whether or not it's free market liberal, social, whatever, but certainly a vehicle, a light onto the world, a country that sets the standard for human rights, for modernity, for progress. And that is not at all what the country has become. And anyone who actually lives on the ground and sees the reality of the conflict, I think it's impossible to ignore this. So I think Israelis do want a way out. I think while they understand it can continue, they also know that if there was a feasible way, they would do it. So when I read a poll, like the poll that came out last week, saying that 75% of Israelis would no longer agree to make any territorial concessions for a two-state solution. In other words, what, what would be necessary for two states in the normal sense to come into being, most Israelis now aren't willing to do. That doesn't mean they don't want a solution. That means they understand that, that this solution is no longer viable. So if we can begin to offer a discourse, and, it's, and I don't imagine this could be the final discourse, but at least it's a start to get people thinking outside the box. If we can offer that and get people thinking in that way, then we can open up new possibilities for people and actually give them hope that maybe change is possible. I want to run through just a couple other kind of maybe common criticisms and you sure. know common ideas that you know, people might have when they first hear this concept. And one of them is, you know, how would security work? You know, would would the two governments sort of have to work together for a common security? You know, when, when it comes to outside relations with other countries or as well as internal security. So how do you kind of see that playing out? Let us recall that the only area of Oslo that works is security. So Israel already has full security control over the territories. There are irredentist groups like Hamas, which attack it occasionally, and sometimes a lot. But of course, again, almost every massive Hamas attack has been in response to even larger scale Israeli attacks. And if you look at the comparative death toll and when the deaths occurred, you can see the reality of that statement. But in general, the PA is already the subcontractor of Israeli security in the West Bank. And despite every two years rocket, you know, the sort of war with Hamas, Hamas, in fact, protects Israeli security most of the time in Gaza. Every, you know, again, when the tension gets too high, there's this little war with a lot of death and destruction, but, you know, lasts a month or so. And then things go back to normal for a couple of years. So there already is security cooperation. What we envision and what we detail in several chapters in the book, in a lot of detail, is precisely the mechanisms for a more robust security cooperation. And again, in a situation where you're sharing sovereignty, you have an absolute interest in protecting the territory in which the other lives because it happens to be your territory. So in that sense, there is much more of an interest for each side to actually protect the other's security in a situation where they're sharing sovereignty rather than saying, oh, that's your place over there. I don't care what happens over there as long as it doesn't happen over here. There is no over there anymore. There's only here. Let us also remember that of the two peoples, the side that has been living in absolute insecurity for 60 years is the Palestinian side, not the Israeli side. I think Americans always forget this. They think about always Israel under attack, Israel under attack. It's the Palestinians who've been kicked out by the millions, dispossessed, had their land stolen, routinely land expropriations, murders, you know, home demolitions, tens of thousands of people jailed, tortured. I mean, if you actually read just Israeli human rights reports about what the Israeli government does on a daily basis for decades, if anyone actually did that, I don't think they could be a Zionist, because when you see the reality, it's impossible to believe the myth anymore. So on the one hand, 
our very detailed plans for security make it much more important for both sides to help protect the other. And on the second hand, I think whenever you mention security, the first thing you need to realize is the side that has been the insecure side in any measure possible all these years has not been the Israeli side. It's been the Palestinian side, and this also protects them. What about kind of basic, you know, neighborly disputes? Let's say if, uh, you know, there's an Israeli citizen who's put himself under Israeli citizenship and he lives next door to a Palestinian and say one accuses the other of some sort of crime. So how would how would just basic crimes be addressed between citizens of two different nations? Right. And this is the same question that would occur in uh, if you lived on the border of Italy and Switzerland in a more territorial thing, you know, whose laws do things come under? Well, First of all, in our discussion, again, we have a chapter on that as well, the key to everything is harmonization, legal harmonization. And the key to legal harmonization of the two systems is that they both have to fall under a greater rubric, which would be the European Covenant of Human Rights and and basically the highest standards of European law. So the relationship of the two states will be similar to how any EU state relates to each other. Members of the EU cannot have laws that would contradict certain core fundamental principles that are accepted by all EU states. So in that sense, whatever the differences in Israeli and Palestinian law, they would not be great enough so that either party's fundamental human civil political rights could ever be infringed upon by the other. So that's the first thing. So our proposal actually raises significantly the legal standards available to protect both Israelis and Palestinians. So that's the first thing. The second thing is We have certain, in our plan, at least to begin with, we have what we call core areas and core cities. So, of course, while overall two states would be overlapping, a town like Tel Aviv or, you know, or an overwhelmingly Jewish town or an overwhelmingly Palestinian town would have certain types of local education measures, cultural measures, legal measures in place that are more reflective of the overwhelming demographic reality in these towns. But in general, there would be, you know, common courts. There would be courts that would adjudicate, you know, depending on what you're talking about, what kinds of laws, civil claim, criminal claims. There would be, you know, in the same way that there have been different legal systems that have coexisted for centuries in the region, there could very easily, and again, we we detail this in the book, levels of courts that correspond to different types of situations, but all would have to fall under a higher judicial standard that they would have to apply to. And this, of course, the single most important thing here, I think this is absolutely crucial, is that this would radically improve the position of women in both Jewish and Palestinian society. In Jewish-Israeli society, women are severely discriminated against in a legal sense. Among the you know, million or so religious Jews, I don't know the exact number, it's probably even more, women can't get divorced right, unless they get the permission from the men. They have much less rights than men. Palestinian Muslim society also discriminates against women. This would end. You know? Both communities and all citizens of both communities would have to develop laws of personal status and laws that cover intracommunal existence and personal existence that correspond to the highest standards operating at the global and and European level. So in our view, while there's certainly a lot of difficulties, these are difficulties that have been encountered in many other places. They're not unusual, legally speaking, in terms of international law. And most importantly, they actually afford greater protections and greater rights to both peoples and to the majority of both peoples than they now enjoy.
I really, like I said, find this concept so fascinating. I've only become familiar with it in the last month or two since reading the book, but I, and I had never heard such a proposal before. Like I said, it's really the only one that seems to focus on the rights of the individual, regardless of their religion, their ethnicity, their gender, and that kind of thing. And that's why I think it's such an important vision to at least put out there, because if nothing else, it can at least, you know, open up possibilities that maybe people had never thought of before. Well, I would just like to say, I think, you know, a state was conceived of, and any political arrangement is a tool, it's a means. Especially in the modern world and in the post-enlightenment world, the role of government and the role of states is to help realize the fullest possibilities of the individual. The problem with nationalism is that it becomes too collectivist and people are asked to sacrifice their core beliefs for some imagined identity of the nation, which generally is actually utilized by the few who have most power for their own ends. So what we're trying to do is set up two states which can actually maximize the benefit and the utility of government for the development of each citizen in that territory, regardless of whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. And I'm just curious what, I guess realistically, what possibility do you see of this proposal gaining traction in, I guess, more mainstream political circles? I mean, do you see this gaining any more credence as the years go on? You know, in the U.S., it's not so easy because, of course, the Republican and Democratic establishments are both so tied into the Republicans into a, into a greater Israel, very hardcore Jewish, you know, Zionist nationalism, and the Democrats into Oslo. So, and neither has any interest in challenging that because it, it either violates their ideology, in the case of Republicans, it would vitiate any, you know, 20, 25 years of peacemaking from the Democrat side, as it was led by first Carter, then Clinton, then Obama. So there's very little interest. And of course, the, the current military relationship and the wars and everything are so profitable to the most powerful corporations. So the U.S. government, I don't know. But I can tell you in Israel and Palestine, we have a lot of, a lot of interest. Not only has this gotten a fair amount of coverage in Haaretz and other major Hebrew language newspapers, this is something where we've had major settler leaders like Yisrael Harel, one of the leaders of, of the settler movement, and others saying, this is a good idea, we support it because it allows us to stay. We had senior Palestinian leaders like Hanan Tashrawi, who wrote a blurb on the back of the book, who think it's a great idea, and we've met with pretty much everyone. So, you know, we believe that in Israel-Palestine that there is a much greater chance. After all, the Likud party has essentially declared its vision is to annex the West Bank and make Palestinians full citizens. This is now essentially the actual political platform of the majority of members of the dominant party in Israel is to annex the West Bank and give Palestinians full citizenship, which in the current demographic balance would still leave Jews in this enlarged Israel with enough of a balance not to have to worry about losing the Jewish majority as long as Gaza can be left out. But this, of course, again, is another fantasy. So, but they're moving in the direction of realizing we can't just continue as occupiers. We have to give people greater rights. So if they're willing to do this, then why, if you're going to create a binational state in all but name, why not create two states that at least allow you to maintain the core identity that you've been working so hard to build? So when we talk to people and they think about this, even the more right-wing people on both sides think that this is a potentially good idea. Well, again, it's a fascinating concept, and it's, it's definitely one of the most, I think, long-term viable solutions if we can just kind of get enough people to take it into account, and it sounds like that is actually happening in many ways on the ground. So I really appreciate your work and the work of many others that have uh, you know, been putting into this. 
Thank you so much, and a pleasure to be on your show. Sure, and before I let you go, where can people find this book? One Land, Two States, Israel and Palestine as Parallel States. And also, you know, if anybody wants to get in touch with you and learn more about this subject, how would they do that? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, it's available everywhere. It's an ebook. You can download it from the UC Press website or from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other site. And certainly, it's available in bookstores everywhere. If they want to reach me, I'm very easy to reach at my university email mlevine at uci.edu, and I'm always happy to talk with people who want to understand the concepts more, but I, I would hope people would, you know, not only buy the book, but share it and talk to their politicians and others to, you know, take this seriously, because the more we try to get those with power to take this seriously, the, the, the greater the chance that we can actually have an impact and begin to change the dynamics of the conflict. Mark Levine, thank you once again for coming on the show, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Take care. We'll be back after a little break. Do you want your kids to meet the champion of the Constitution? What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? The book is Meet Ron Paul, and you can get your copy today at lionsofliberty.com slash Paul. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Meet Ron Paul and keep the liberty movement moving. Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar! That's right, every Monday to Friday we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media, or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at LionsOfLiberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Chris Rossini's new book, Set Money Free. Set Money Free. What every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve. Set Money Free. With a special foreword by Ron Paul. Set Money Free. It has easy to understand questions and answers. Set Buy Set Money Free on Amazon.com. Chris Rossini's Set Money Free. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Mark Levine, the co-editor of the book One Land, Two States, Israel and Palestine as Parallel States. And this is a subject I've long been interested in, having grown up in a Jewish household. Obviously, this is a subject that came up quite often when I was growing up. And, you know, a big problem with this conflict is what seems like such a black and white position that many on either quote-unquote side 
seem to take. You know, either Israel is always in the right and they deserve to have the state of Israel do whatever it must do to, you know, survive, or Palestine is in the right and the Palestinians should, you know, move back to Israel and take that place over. I mean, that's really oversimplifying things, but when you get into actual conversations with people, it does always seem to come down to what group of people is collectively right as opposed to what is right, what is just, as opposed to focusing on individual rights. And of course, there are injustices that have taken place on both sides of this conflict, but, you know, in the end, it's justice we have to strive for when seeking a solution, not just to see, you know, our favorite team win or what have you, because when one side in a conflict like this quote-unquote wins, well, that means that the rights of a lot of other people are probably being violated in the process. It means a lot of people are dying, a lot of people are being killed, a lot of people are being starved, and, you know, this is the kind of stuff that angers people and that really intensifies the conflict. So I'm really glad Mr. Levine was able to come on the show and at least present this alternative solution, this idea of parallel stage, which I had never really heard until very recently. But, you know, one thing I really like about this solution is the fact that it seems to be the only concept that actually does focus on the individual, the individual sort of deciding their own fate. I'm also glad Mr. Levine echoed something I've said before, that this is not a conflict that's been raging for thousands of years, as we often hear reported. It's a very modern conflict with identifiable causes, and at its core, the creation of the Israeli state, the way it was done through imperial decree, basically created a system where one group essentially had to have greater rights than another, and no people or group of people should have greater or lesser rights than anyone of their fellow man, and I'm really glad this is something that Mark Levine, and I would take it many of the other authors who have worked on this book, really do understand. I'm also glad Mr. Levine mentioned the concept of the nation-state and how this this concept leads to collectivist thinking, the idea that, you know, one certain territory, wherever these lines are drawn, whoever is in charge of that state has complete sovereignty, complete power over the, you know, all the territory and all the people within its sort of region. And this is a concept that I think is, you know, it's one that many people still cling to, but it leads to this collectivist thinking. It leads to identifying yourself with some kind of superfluous notion of the state as opposed to identifying with your actual property, with your actual family, with the actual community that's building around you. Now, this is something that needs to be abandoned, and it's a dangerous concept that leads to all sorts of wars that, that really leads to population supporting wars of all kind, because, you know, when you are the nation state, the nation state is you, your country, your state is always going to be right now, the concept of the nation-state is something we need to abandon. This is a vastly different concept than the city-state, something I've discussed with Shane Whistler in the past, starting way back with his first appearance on the show in episode two, where private property owners can form their own cities on adjoining property and, you know, form city-states and create their own rules for governing themselves. And, you know, if the Jewish state were created more in line with this manner, more in line with, you know, the acquisition of property through peaceful means, as did happen, you know, in the early days when Jewish settlers were moving in, it was only when the imperial powers came in and started saying, well, this is Israel, this is the Jewish land, this is where you go, you know, that's when it, the conflicts you really started to intensify and where nationalism on both sides really drove things to violence as a solution, which we still see happening today. So I hope you'll keep these ideas in mind. I hope you find them interesting. And if so, check out Mr. Levine's book. Again, that's One Land, Two States, Israel and Palestine as Parallel States. Please head over 
and buy it through our link, through our website, lionsofliberty.com. We have an Amazon link right on the right-hand side. If you click on that, any purchases you make through that website will get a little kickback. Help keep the lights on here at the Lions of Liberty Studios. Also, if you just go to the show notes for this episode, you will see a link directly to this book. And if you enjoy this show, please, there's just one favor I want to ask of you guys. If you like this show, if you want to keep listening it, I ask you to head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. Rate the show, give us a rating, and leave a review for us. Just doing those three things can do so much to help us improve our clout, help us get that show popping up in more people's iTunes, and you know, hopefully finding more people to just you know get more interested in not just this show, but the ideas of liberty overall. No matter how you listen to the show, this will help us out. Even if you listen on Stitcher, on Daily Paul Radio, Grassroots Revolution Radio, uh, Liberty Radio Network, LRN.FM, there are so many places you can listen to this show. And of course, you can listen to it by coming over to lionsofliberty.com every single Thursday when a new episode is published. Now, and don't forget to keep coming back, join the conversation, check out our social media, facebook.com slash lionsofliberty, our Twitter at lionsofliberty. There are so many ways to communicate with us. And please come back next week when I'll have another interesting guest, a gentleman by the name of Udo Ulfkott. He is a German journalist. Well, I should say ex-journalist. He's written a book where he claims that for the entirety of his journalistic career, he was essentially working for the CIA, writing articles for the CIA, having articles written for him by the CIA, and essentially used as a propaganda tool. So he should be a very interesting guest. I hope you'll come back for that. And I hope you'll come back every week. And until then... All I'm going to ask you to do is to live long and live free. Peace.